Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 72? Psalm 72. You'll notice in the superscription of it that it is a Psalm of Solomon. And so, it begins with something new. Um, This is the last psalm that we will see before we go into book three. So it closes out book two, which tells us something important, is that books one and two of the Psalter are tracking the life of David. So as we read 1 and 2 Samuel, which primarily deal with David and his life and how the Lord sets him apart, What we have to understand is in those narratives, we read descriptions of the troubles that David goes through. But as we come to the Psalter, we begin to deal with what David was dealing with internally. Even, you may say, emotionally, what David was dealing with. How he handled those things and how he comes to the Lord. And so as we get to Psalm 72 and it's closing out the life of David, we see it's of Solomon. So attribution is given to Solomon. But if you look at verse 20 of the psalm, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So who is it written by? Is it written by Solomon or is it written by David? There's several different theories. Most of them are this, is that it was written by David for his son Solomon. Uh, What makes sense to me, uh, Spurgeon alludes to this, and even Calvin alludes to this too, is that at the end of David's life, he recounts this prayer to his son Solomon, and Solomon writes it down. And that actually is rather nice to think about when you think about the words that we're going to read. This is The words of a dying man, a prayer for his son that will soon reign in his place. It divides up nicely into three areas in the prayer. The first, just giving it very simple headings in verses 1 through 7, we see the theme of it, praying for justice, that the king would reign with justice and having just judgment. In verses 8 through 14, he's praying for the rule and dominion of the king. That his rule and dominion would know uh, the ends of the earth. And then finally, we see in verses 15 through 20, blessings and fulfillment that come with this. So let us hear this word, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the needy, to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. 
For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. As you heard this read, I I hope that you notice many different poetic phrases that were used that we find elsewhere in Scripture. Many themes that are in other places besides the Psalms are exemplified as promises of blessing from the Lord upon the people of Israel. And so we will take a look at those and see how David is praying this for his son Solomon, but actually he's looking forward to their fulfillment in his greater son. And so while he might have been praying this prayer as he's looking at his son and his son is writing it down, uh, David has his eye ever on the Messiah that will come. And so we see he begins by saying in verses 1 through 7, he speaks that he wishes that his son or prays for his son to have just judgment. And in these verses, the prayer is for the king to administer justice through right judgment and righteousness. And this is intermixed with metaphorical language of the creation and blessing that would flow as a result of it. But he just simply says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Now, prayer for the king, this is a prayer for the king, and as you get past verse 1, verses 2 through 7, predict if God answers this prayer, how this king will rule when this prayer is answered. So if you view verse 1 this way, is to give the king your justice, to give the king by your grace the ability to rule and just and judge justly, the answered prayer to that and what that rule will look like is in verses 2 through 7. So think of verse 1 as the prayer that the Lord would give him the ability to just rightly. And then when you get to verses 2 through 7, you see how that prayer unfolds when the Lord answers it. So give the king your justice. This is specifically, give the king your principles of judgment. So what does the Lord expect of the king? That he he rules justly. That he rules righteously. That he practices equity. When we hear that word, we're not thinking the usage of it, as so often put forth today, we're thinking of it in the sense that the Bible puts it forth, of just balances 
and just scales that are equal to all people. And so this is a prayer that the king may judge according to God's word. So how do we have just scales? How do we have just weights? How do we have balanced scales? How do we understand what justice is? It is according to and based off of God's word, God's word alone. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 17, it describes justice perfectly for us. And take note of this. You shall not be partial in judgment. That's how we have justice. That's how a king rules justly. That's how any ruler or any person in a position of power demonstrates true justice. And that's how we practice judgment in our daily life is you shall not be partial in judgment. There's many implications to this that we'll explore, but it goes on to say, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's, and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. You know, for the king, this applies to how he interacts with his family, doesn't it? For the king, this applies to how he would interact with his friends and those of close confidence if he's to judge without partiality, if he's supposed to hear the small and the great alike, and that's what it means to give the king your justice, O God, and specifically your justice is that impartial judging that the king is supposed to do. And so that would apply to everyone. How often... Did David fall short as he practiced justice? How often did his family do things, Absalom, where he should have been executed? You think of all of the instances where David failed, where David himself should have had the stone lifted against him. And so when we see this word justice, the first thing that we have to understand is justice is applied equally to all. It doesn't matter who it is. In Israel, it was the parent who was to throw the first stone at the child. And so when we think about that idea of justice and impartiality, we have to see it as really meaning impartiality. And that's the difficult thing about practicing judging, isn't it? Oftentimes we have a fear of man, oftentimes because of the emotional tie. But if God's word states it as being good, then it was a good practice. It was a good law. If this is what God commanded of the people, then this is a good thing. But when we ignore that, and we ignore that which God has put forth, what we do is we actually say, God, I know how to rule justly. And we say, when we don't practice God's way of impartiality, what we actually say is, God, we know what justice is, not you. He says, and your righteousness to the royal son. And this is parallelism. But when you think of righteousness and that that moral quality of that which is right, this is God's standard. When we think of God's law, we know that God gave us a moral law, the Ten Commandments, that teach us how to love God and how to love neighbor. But he also gave Israel a judicial law. 
and judicial law in which how to govern according to the Ten Commandments. And the, the confession today defines this today in our application as general equity. Those parts of that judicial law that are explaining or showing how to handle the Ten Commandments. When we think of righteousness, how did God look at the Ten Commandments? He goes on and prays, May He judge your people with righteousness. So now, this is more of in the predictive sense. This is the answer to the prayer. And when He may judge, it's the idea of governing. So may, may He judge your people with righteousness. That word judge it's better, the better sense of it is to govern. And righteousness here is referring to accuracy. And you look at the word people, that is speaking of the nation as a whole. And so the first sentence is speaking of the nation and how the king interacts with all people, that he will govern them rightly with accuracy. But then it gives in the next part of the verse this qualification, and you're poor with justice. The poor, that is the, the afflicted. And, and oftentimes it's the afflicted, those that have become poor. And so what's the king's duty with the poor is to treat them with justice, to have equal balances on the scale. So, so the poor are not to be neglected because of their lack of financial standing and influence. They're not to be favored either, by the way. Sometimes we get this upside down in our society. Where some are favored, they're to be treated equally and have just and balanced skills applied to them. But this is an important thing to say to the king because what can the king gain from the poor? Nothing. But he can rule righteously by treating them with justice. And so the king is supposed to do this. And you go to verse 3, where then in poetic language, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. So you see this idea of governance over the people in righteousness. And verse 3 tells us what happens when the king judges rightly. And so the, the mention of the, the mountains and the hills are the, the, the greatest features of any land. And so it's speaking of the wholeness of the land, the, referring to the land and the blessings of the land, that because the king is acting in righteousness, the land will be fruitful as a result of it. What should be in your mind right now? Blessings for obedience. Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Why would that take place? Because justice was applied in the land and God would bless it. That was the promise to Israel. And so David is praying 
that this would be in the life of his, his future son. And as he, he looks at Solomon and has already called Solomon a wise man, this is, this is what he wants for his son. But more importantly, this is what he wants to bring glory to God. He goes on to say, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And so he continues to say this thing that those that can bring him nothing, may he apply justice equally to these people, the, the cause of the poor that are, that are, are you notice the word oppressor, that are oppressed, that, that, that are uh, defeated, those that, that cannot defend themselves. He's calling the king to defend the helpless. But I want you to notice something very important, a part of the rule of the king, is he's asking, may he crush the oppressor? And so the part of the king's rule is that he is to crush the oppressor. And what is this language from? Isn't this part of the language that we see in the curse I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. That is, he shall crush your head. This is the very prayer of David, is that the the realization of the crushing of the serpent would take place in his future son. We should desire. We should desire that the king would enact punishment in equal manner to what is deserved. The Old Testament was eye for an eye. That's not speaking of individual vengeance. That is speaking of the law of the land of the rulers that they would practice an eye for an eye. That is still a good rule. That is the sword that was given over to the governing rulers, is that they would practice justice for an eye for an eye. And we too should pray this for rulers today, that rulers today would, uh, would crush the oppressors. We should pray that rulers today would act justly, we, we should pray that the rulers of today would just get one commandment right. Rather than trampling on the word of God. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. And the result of this righteous rule is that God would be glorified and that as a ruler rules righteously, it would always point to a sovereign God that had instituted that ruler. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And so again, we see blessings for the king's obedience. We see blessings upon the land, a a whole healing of the land and of the people under the rule of a righteous king this is what they would realize. And it's, it's the blessings of the king's obedience. Because so goes the king, so goes the nation, right? Amen. 
weight of responsibility was upon the king. You think of the last words of David in 2 Samuel 23, verse 3, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, listen to what he says, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's final words are part of his prayer for his son, that the land would be lush with vegetation, the land would be lush bearing fruit that the people could freely enjoy. He calls for this to take place, and in verse 7, he summarizes all of this. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. What a wonderful prayer for the king. Not only because the king would rule righteously, but the land itself would produce fruit and the people themselves would flourish. And it all comes upon the weight of the king to bring this about. That's important to recognize as we see that this is pointing towards the greater king, the greater son of David. When you have wicked kings, the people groan. When you have righteous kings, the people rejoice. And Proverbs 29, verse 2, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. When wickedness takes place in the land and then there's wicked rulers over the land, what you see is no longer justice, but you see greed, you see deceit, you see deception, you see murder where they are following their father, Satan, who was a murderer and liar from the beginning. Whenever a wicked king exhibits these traits, what they are doing is simply following in the footsteps of their father, Satan. But when a king rules with righteousness and with justice, he is following the Lord's word. David moves from this idea of prayer for judging righteously and with justice to that of dominion. In verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And this is, may he rule, may, he, may this be his area that he has, he has over and he is ruling over it and he is sovereign over these things. And David is just simply praying forth the promises of, that God has given to him. In 2 Samuel, in chapter 7, in verse 13, we read of this promise. He will build, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this is praying for that realization of it. But it's also the realization given to the command to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the land. But rather than Adam taking dominion over the creation, the creation took dominion over Adam. And man has been fighting that ever since. And so what Solomon is being prayed for by David is this, is that that would be realized in his greater son, that dominion 
would be taking place, that dominion would be realized. Let me give you a very simple idea about dominion. You think of the areas of spheres of influence that we have. Let me just give you a really basic one, and if we could get this right, if we could just get this one right, we would be living in a different world. Men are given the dominion of their family. They're given dominion over the family to lead their wives and their children according to the word of God. If the church over the last 50 years and its evangelistic outreach programs and all that they did to try to reach people would have just focused on the children in their own church and the church would have focused on discipling men, the church would be a lot healthier today. We, we, we don't have to have grandiose ideas about taking dominion over the whole entire earth. How about just starting with your family and leading justly and righteously in the family? He continues to explore this idea of dominion. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. And just hang on that phrase there. And his enemies lick the dust. That is very clear reference back to Genesis in chapter 3. In verse 14, where we read, The Lord saying to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You just go through Scripture and you read the phrases where you find eating dust. It is speaking of being conquered. Any phrase that I've found of that, maybe you could find another phrase where it doesn't refer to this, but it means being conquered by someone. Someone that has been victorious over, and the one that is eating the dust is the one has been defeated in some sort of battle. And so what this is speaking of is that the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of the people of the Lord, that they would lick the dust. And because that phrase in Genesis is is followed by Genesis 3.15, there's something very important. One commentator says this, because Genesis 3.15 goes on to speak of the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the reference to the enemies licking the dust means that those at enmity with the king will come under the same curses that fell on their father, the devil. That's a profound statement. Because those that oppress the church, those that oppress the, the people of God now, just as we read in math, in, excuse me, John chapter 15 into chapter 16, those that hate us, that hate the Son, that hate the Father, they are actually falling under the same curse of their father. And their opposition demonstrates who their father is. So they may they be defeated. 
May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And this is, is speaking of, of, of the kings coming to the king, the son of David, because they know that he is king. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Amazing parallel to Jacob's final words and blessing particularly to Judah. In Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. He's praying for the fulfillment of Jacob's blessing to Judah. It's amazing how David is recounting biblical history as he prays God's words back to God. That kings would come down and bow before the king. He says of the king this, in verse 12, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the life of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their sight, is their blood in his sight. Again, to state that the king will help the helpless. This is all again flowing out of the prayer request in verse 1. May he judge justly. The king will hear the pleas that are ignored by the world. The king will comfort the broken by his presence. Those that have been overlooked, the king sees. Those who are distraught, the king is there for them. Those who have been oppressed, the king is there to crush the oppressor. The king is there to stand on behalf of those that cannot stand on their own. Just think about in in Solomon for a second. Of hearing the two women fighting over the life of the baby. Who were those women? They were the low portions of society that you would not be associated with, but yet they're in the king's court pleading their case before the king, and the king wisely separates the sheep from the goats and comforts the sheep. Even a wicked man like Solomon could be used for great mercy when he judged justly and righteously. What a king that would do this. What a king, a king that's so great that these words almost seem hollow, that he would help the helpless. Sounds so cliche in our overcharged, over-sensual day and age when we hear all the promises of leaders that will help and stand on behalf of those that cannot stand. But what we see here is the promise from God's word that there will be a king that will rule justly. And because he will rule justly, will do these things. 
In verse 15, it moves into blessings and fulfillment that come as a result. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May, the, may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. This is a prayer that the fulfillment of an eternal kingdom would be realized in his son, in his future son. That may he lo- live long. And may the people be praying for him continually that he would rule justly and righteously. Just think of this for one second. How much more ought we to pray continually for the rulers in our day and age? Verse 1. May the Lord give them justice to judge. He goes on to say the realization of these blessings... May there be an abundance of grain in the land, and the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. This is the realization of the covenant promises, the flourishing of the people. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. This is the promise to Abraham that his seed, singular, will be blessed, which is then David prays is realized through the line of Judah. He concludes with a doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. A doxology is a prayer, a song, a praise of God. And as you look at this word, who alone does wondrous things, the wonders and the wondrous things that are referenced here are the answering of the prayers that have been articulated. And because it's stated like that, it's something that's not in our existence that we've experienced in any earthly king. To say that it's a wonder. It's a wondrous thing that a king would actually rule righteously. And it concludes, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The fact that we see David as the son of Jesse, we should note David was a historical person. David was a real man. David was made with clay feet that the Lord used despite his clay feet. And what we see prayed here is simply this, what was lost in Adam as he was given reign and dominion and lost it to the serpent is reclaimed in the Davidic king. This is the growth of the kingdom. This is the growth of the kingdom that is being prayed for when Christ rules in the heart of his people as Lord. Christ is king over all things. Christ is sovereign over all things, specifically. But we we know that he is the head of the church and he reigns over those that call upon him. So we must likewise pray and be on commission. 
We must follow the Lord and what he said to make disciples and baptize and teaching them to observe all that Jesus taught and said. There's something else about this, is this is how we can pray for earthly leaders. This is how we should pray for earthly leaders. While many times we pray for specific things because we know that there's an injustice in things that leaders are, are, are trying to to get by, we pray that they would act justly, that they would use just skills and just balances, and, and that they would not show partiality, that they would not be overtaken by bribery and greed and deceit, that they would not follow their father, the devil, but rather that by the Spirit regenerating their hearts, that they would call upon the Lord. But as we say these prayers, what do we know is earthly leaders fell even the best. I don't know what you think about this president, but I was watching video clips of Ronald Reagan giving speeches the other day. I thought, what a great president. Instilled patriotism and unified the American people. And I thought, wow. Wouldn't that be nice to hear someone articulate a message once again? But the realization was that he was a compromiser just like every other leader that's ever lived, as great as he might have been. Because there is no perfect ruler, and when we find a ruler that we like, what do they do? They disappoint us. They make us realize this reality is that there is no perfect ruler that always rules justly. And then when we place our hope in a man, we recognize that they fall. And we are then in that moment, we recognize our need for Christ, who is the only one that rules perfectly and justly. And so the one that we look to is the one that we pray to, the one that we sing to, the one that we worship, the one that we bow down to, and all kings will one day bow before the one true living king. Long live the Lord Jesus. And he rules perfectly and justly. He will rule perfectly and justly as a king in a final judgment one day. And he describes this final judgment and what it looks like when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We also see that his, his, his dominion is perfectly over all that exists, that there's nothing outside of his dominion. What is that? Well, Ephesians tells us this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only, here it is, not only in this age, that is now, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has a perfect rule, a perfect sovereignty over all that exists. In other words, Christ rules over all and is sovereign over all right at this moment. Christ is ruling over everything. Nothing has escaped Christ. The fulfillment of that prayer of a just judge is only realized in the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules righteously, who rules justly, and in his sovereign plans, things are unfolding exactly as he has determined they would unfold and determined in eternity. Nothing will catch our king off guard. Nothing will surprise our king. But our king rules as a righteous king that has the ultimate judgment. And all people will stand before that judge and he will not be unfair to one single person. They will receive his welcome home or they will receive his just wrath. But the scales will be balanced by one thing. His righteousness. And his righteousness alone. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Ruler. We praise the Lord Jesus for his perfect life lived. We praise the Lord Jesus that he is interceding on our behalf and ruling over all things and sovereign over all things. Father, as we see wicked rulers, we see deceit and greed, it can be for us frustrating. It can be maddening. For some people in the world today, wicked rulers can mean death and persecution. But we take great comfort knowing the Lord Jesus is our righteous king. And that one day all rulers will stand before the the true king and bow before him in submission to his lordship. May this be our comfort. May this be our praise and may this be our song. And Father, we pray for those that are oppressed, for the needy, that are crying out to you day and night, that Father, they would be comforted knowing that you hear their prayers, that you see their tears. And we pray that they would take great joy in knowing that you are sovereign and nothing comes across their path that is not meant for their good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.